Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in chronological order of publication. And this week I'm examining the film adaptation of the short story found within his 2003 collection Everything's Eventual about a haunted hotel room that'll drive you insane and the movie of course is 1408. Now as you know from my review of Everything's Eventual, I love this short story. I think it's a weird, surreal trip. It's definitely a mind trip. When I heard that it was being made into a movie, I immediately thought it was a bad idea. The thing that made it so effective, I believed, would be lost when they tried to translate it into a film. I remember barely uh, seeing it in the theater, but I remember my viewing experience justified my initial thoughts. I thought that the short story was a brave move on King's part. I mean, it can't be easy writing a story about a haunting in a hotel without drawing comparisons to The Shining. But what King does in the short story is completely different from what he had done with The Shining, so any initial comparisons are blown away as soon as you begin reading. However, a movie is a different experience, and unfortunately, Stanley Kubrick had already done surreal with the adaptation of The Shining. So by the very nature of what Kubrick had done, this movie was going to be compared to the film legend that is The Shining. So how did it fare upon rewatch? Let's find out. But first, let me read a listener email. Brett writes, Hello, sir. I'm up through your night shift review, by the way, really enjoying the shows. I'm almost done with Dr. Sleep, and I went and picked up Mr. Mercedes yesterday, so I'll be prepared for that. I realize that, including his short story collection coming out in November, I only have four kings left. Then I can tell people I've read everything, which is quite something considering the sheer number of books he's published. Do you realize that since 1974 and the publication of Carrie, 1976 and 1988 are the only years that did not have at least one king book or short story collection or something? Pretty amazing. I gotta say, I almost peed my pants with laughter at your review of the Salem's Lot 1979 miniseries. Truth be told, I've always had a soft spot for this, even though I recognize it's pretty dull and goes on forever. I just kind of like it and can always comfortably sink back in and watch all three hours without being bored. And I'm glad you acknowledged that the vampire boys at the window are terrifying, and that was on regular network TV in 1979. Amazing to me that something that scary was on normal TV. You didn't mention this in your review, but I thought I'd tell you that there is a significantly shorter cut of Salem's Lot that might be more up your alley as it clocks in clocks in at under two hours. Sadly, I think this one is only available on VHS, but I believe it's actually the first version I watched as a kid, the one that had, they had at our local video store. It's labeled The Movie and is on one tape, while the miniseries is the three-hour version that was on two VHS tapes. There are a ton of cuts, but also weird random changes. For instance, when George Dunza finds his wife shagging Fred Willard, in the movie version, he puts his shotgun in Willard's mouth, while in the miniseries, he just points it at him. That's all I got for now. I'm downloading your next show as I write this. Brett. So, Brett, thank you for, for writing in. Guys, if you haven't done so already, uh, feel free to write in at stephenkinkast at yahoo.com. And if you have some free time on your hands, head on over to iTunes to write a review and a subscription to iTunes. 
because it'll go a long way in really helping to, to put the Stephen King cast out there. Okay, guys, so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to get back to 1408, and I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary, so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Mike Enslin is a cynical, skeptical author who, after the death of his daughter, Katie, writes a book appraising supernatural events in which he has no belief. After his latest book, he receives an anonymous postcard depicting the Dolphin, a hotel on Lexington Avenue in New York bearing the message, Don't Enter 1408. Viewing this as a challenge, Mike forces the hotel to allow him to book the room, referencing a law that any hotel room in New York can be requested as long as it meets safety standards. The hotel manager, Gerald Olin, tries to dissuade Mike from checking into that room, explaining that 56 people have died in the room over the past 95 years, and that no one has lasted more than an hour inside it. Mike, who does not believe in the paranormal, insists on staying in the room and asks Olin if he thinks it's haunted. Olin replies that it is evil rather than haunted. Once inside the room, Mike describes on his mini cassette recorder the room's dull appearance and its unimpressive lack of supernatural phenomenon. During his examination, the clock radio starts playing, we've only just begun. Mike assumes that Olin is playing a trick to scare him. At 8.07, the song plays again, and the clock's digital display changes to a countdown starting from 60 minutes. Mike experiences a series of supernatural events. A window sash slams down on his hand. The hotel operator calls about food he didn't order, and a spectral manifestation of the room's past victims and members of his family, particularly his daughter, appear on the TV set. Mike attempts to leave the room. Mike's attempt to leave the room are in vain. The doorknob breaks off, climbing through the air duct prompts an attack from a corpse of a former room victim, and climbing onto the window ledge reveals that the window of the other rooms have disappeared. Mike uses his laptop to contact his estranged wife, Lily, but the sprinkler system short-circuits his laptop. The room temperature drops to sub-zero when the laptop suddenly begins to work again, and Lily tells him the police have entered 1408, but the room is empty. A doppelganger of Mike appears in a video chat window and urges Lily to come to the hotel herself. It gives Mike a diabolical smile. The room shakes violently, and Mike breaks a picture of a ship in a storm. Water pours from the broken picture flooding the room. He surfaces on a beach and relives a surfing accident seen earlier in the film. His life continues from this point and he reconciles with Lily. Eventually he assumes his experience in 1408 was just a dream. Lily persuades him to write a book about it. When visiting the post office to send the manuscript to his publisher, he recognizes members of a construction crew as the Dolphin Hotel staff. They destroy the post office walls, revealing Mike is still trapped in 1408. A vision of Katie appears to Mike, and after some reluctance he embraces her, she crumbles to dust. The clock radio begins playing, we've only just begun again, and Mike looks, it, looks for it in the rubble. It counts down the final seconds. When the countdown ends, the room is suddenly restored to normal, and the clock radio resets itself to 60. The hotel operator calls Mike again. When Mike begs to be released, she informs him that he can relive the hour over and over again, or use their express checkout system. A hangman's noose appears, and Mike has a vision of himself hanged, but he refuses to kill himself. Mike improvises a Molotov cocktail from a bottle of Cognac, Cog Cognac given to him by Olin, and sets the room on fire. The fire alarm sounds, and the hotel is evacuated, and Lily is prevented from entering. Mike breaks a window, causing a backdraft. Mike lays upon the floor and covers his ears. A group of firefighters enter the room and drag Mike out before the room collapses on them. Mike tells the firefighters, don't go in that room, it's evil. Mike and Lily move to Los Angeles, California. They are unpacking as Lily moves about the house. Mike begins to think again that his experiences were just a bad dream. 
He finds his tape recorder on a box and plays it. The sound of Mike's encounter with Katie is on the tape. Lily and Mike realize that the ordeal was real. Analysis. Nice opening, by the way. I had my surround sound cranked up, and the sound of the rain and the thudding just filled my basement. The use of rain-slick streets under a thunderous sky might not be the most original setting, but I'd say it's effective. In it, we meet the always lovable John Cusack, who arrives at his latest destination, a reportedly haunted inn, and is met by its overeager owners, who inform him and us of the legend of its haunting. From this interaction, we learn so much about what we need to. He's weary and disinterested, and they are milking this legend for all that it's worth, knowing that if he releases a publication with their inn in it, it'll only boost its popularity. And right away, I'm so thrilled that John Cusack's playing this role. He brings his, you know, Cusackian charm to the role. I'm surprised that no one has thought yet to cast he and Paul Rudd together in a movie where they play brothers or best friends. I mean, these are two actors who can play sarcastic and dismissive while never losing any of their likability or charm. In fact, the more sarcastic or disinterested they become, the more you actually like them. Anyway, after a boring evening without haunting, Mike heads to a book signing at a bookstore, and it's a fun little scene, you know, to show the kind of life that he's living, barely scraping by. And through the humorous framing of him speaking to a room comprised of three people, the filmmakers double down on his disbelief. He's a hollowed-out man who is earning a paycheck in what he doesn't believe, and he gets a glimpse of the man he once was when a customer approaches him with the book he'd written when he was younger. From there, we cut to Enslin Surfing in which he has a near-death experience. Now look, I know that anyone can throw a board on the water, and that the ocean is not reserved for your laid-back and capable surfer, but I honestly feel as though having him be a surfer, it's a bad choice. It's a bad choice, because to me, surfing connotes a sense of peace, of being one with nature, of having balance. Now Mike is none of these things. From there, he receives a postcard about the Hotel Dolphin, which makes him want to check it out, and from there he gets very interested when he can't get a reservation. The more he researches, the more he wants. In a humorous beat with Tony Shalhoub and the editor's lawyer, we learn of how he's going to be able to stay in room 1408, which is a good way to show the lengths the Dolphin will go to keep people from staying in the room, staying away from the room, and the lengths to which Mike will go to get his way. Now, this is a great contrast, the overeager inn owners from the beginning. Shalhoub teases events from Mike's past, and before long, Cusack arrives to check in. The setting is wonderful, and the director, Mikhail Hafstrom, keeps things light, with him nailing the checking in process, an over-enthusiastic bellhop, to Mike glancing around and making note of the people who will be sleeping under the same roof as he. The always... Always incredible, Samuel Jackson strolls into the movie to steal the spotlight and attempt to dissuade Mike from staying. Jackson dials his usual energy level down, and as a cinephile, I'm just enjoying watching these two legends share the screen together. And I'm very excited that the upcoming remake, or not remake, but adaptation of Stephen King's Cell is going to star the two of them together. It's awesome. Through their conversation here, Mike learns that the number of deaths in that room is actually 56. Olin does everything he possibly can do to dissuade him from staying in the room, bribing him with good booze and a scrapbook full of the grisly murders of the room. From there, Mike digs in his heels and Cusack and Jackson are free to just have fun, trading barbs, and Hailstrom, knowing that he has Samuel Jackson in the role, allows the veteran actor to monologue, reminding the viewers and Enslin himself about the author's own past. 
As Enslin makes his way to the room, Hailstrom begins to ramp up the creepy factor with the gruesome images of the corpses found within the room throughout history, and even somehow making food left out for house cleaning to take away somehow looks sinister. He eventually enters the room, and Hailstrom is wise to film the room without any of that creepiness that had accompanied Enslin as he made his way to the room itself. It's just a boring, typical, upscale New York hotel. As Enslin says, that's it. He takes a quick tour, and I mean quick. I mean, as how long can you really spend in, spend inspecting a hotel room? And he realizes almost immediately that he's in a safe, non-dangerous room. Lying on the bed, he narrates what he sees, describing the floral wallpaper, stain on the floor, the three paintings, the view outside the window. And at a half an hour into the movie, we get our first jump scare as he's leaning out the window and the music from the radio kicks in. This convinces him that someone's in the room, messing with him, and he begins to narrate, sure of his sanity and his rationale that Olin has sent someone, not realizing that in his assuredness, he's beginning to sound obsessive and slightly off. From there, he goes through the room with a black light and begins to obsess over the painting on the ship on the wall, which is now askew. Isaiah Whitlock Jr., the actor who created a television legend in Senator Clay Sheet Davis from The Wire, shows up to help uh, Cusack's temperature problem, refusing to come into the room and telling him how to fix the thermostat. Two thoughts about this. One, it allows Cusack to interact with another person so this doesn't become a one-man reactionary play of him simply jumping at scares. However, the inclusion of another character takes away from the isolation and insanity of Enslin being locked up in the room, quickly going insane while the guests on either side go about their stay unfazed. From there, the clock begins to count down from an hour. And I don't know if this was purposeful or not, but when I hit pause at this particular moment, there is exactly one hour of movie left. I'm going to give Hailstrom credit for this. And in the context of the movie, it allows for a nice ticking time bomb. What is going to happen when the hour is up? The room has its claws in Cusack, and he sounds insane. He temporarily loses his hearing, creating an effective moment of a thin buzzing and the thudding of his heartbeat. So that works. What doesn't work is the pratfalls that Cusack is forced to go through as the windowsill slams shut on his finger, followed by his hand being burned. Now, this immediately makes me think of Nordberg's series of accents from The Naked Gun. Cusack has enough, and he tries to leave the room, but the room won't let him. The door locks from the inside, the key snaps off in the keyhole, the doorknob comes off in his hand. The problem with this is that there just hasn't been enough to justify his urge to flee. I just don't buy it. He starts freaking out, banging on the door, screams for help outside the window. In a nice creepy scene, he realizes that the man he's communicating with is just a shadowy mirror to his every movement. He then sees someone coming for him, and he voices aloud that he's losing his mind. And it's clear that he is. The countdown says he has 46 minutes left, and his narration and his dictaphone sounds very paranoid and out of touch with reality. The room then shows him footage from his past of a happier time with his wife and child. See-through, flickering black-and-white ghosts stroll about the room, throwing themselves out of the window. The transparency and unreality of the figures is a look that would work wonders if The Regulators was ever made into a movie, by the way. Mike enters uh, into a recreation of the hospital where his father has stayed, the father that had been teased since the very beginning, but not much really happens with him. 
He tries to leave the room. It won't let him. Outside the window, he tries to make it to the next room, only to find that once he stepped onto the ledge, there is no other room to enter. While it makes for a nice, disturbing image, the sequence itself is pretty cheesy. Then we learned of what causes disbelief in God with the death of his child. He tries to contact his wife in an unintentionally hilarious sequence where she refuses to listen to his pleas of call the cops, but reacts when he tells her that he's in the city. This level of obtusiveness is completely unbelievable, and it's too bad because at this point, the movie is really dragging. Cusack then channels his inner John McClane and diehards his way through the vents above the room, or so he thinks. Just like what happened out the window happens here, with the room rearranging reality all around him, and then he's chased through the air ducts by Bill Murray's dead business partner from Scrooged. Enslin's insanity has taken control of him, and through the refrigerator, he thinks he's talking to Olin, but he's really just screaming at beverages within. Now, again, I don't know if it's supposed to be surreal, but it's just coming across as goofy. The room then ices over, and he tries to keep from freezing. Through the computer, the mean old room pretends to be Cusack and tells his wife to come. It then winks at him, and the frost-covered room begins to break apart, explode, transform into the high seas of the painting. The paintings have transformed into evil recreations of themselves, and Mike is slammed with a wave that just comes pouring out of the painting. And this movie, guys, at this point, officially is just ridiculous. Think about what David Lynch would have done with it. I mean, he wouldn't have needed a big budget. He wouldn't have needed set pieces that include frost-covered rooms. This man is a master at transforming the everyday into the horrific. He'd be able to capture the surreal qualities that are needed in showing Cusack's helplessness and paranoia. Once the room fills with ocean water, he finds himself back on the beach that he'd found himself in the beginning of the movie after the surfing accident, and we're led to believe that everything that had occurred was a near-death dream state. Enslin begins the reconciliation process with his wife, and Hailstrom teases that we're experiencing what we are experiencing might not be real. Unsurprisingly, what Enslin had believed was that the real world shatters all around him, and he returns to a ruined 1408. Whether he does it on purpose or not, but director Mikhail Hellstrom gives us one of Stephen King's most famous images in a frustrating tease of what a Dark Tower movie could look like. John Cusack, who could have been... At one point, an incredibly, thoroughly perfect Eddie Dean in his younger days approaches a door standing in the middle of the room. Just seeing this classic image unfold on screen with a character actor who would have been perfect for the role of Eddie Dean makes me want a series of Dark Tower stories adapted for some screen, whether it's big or small. The movie then reunites Enslin with his deceased, deceased daughter, and the room forces him to endure her dying in his arms once more. It's a scene that comes out of left field and is tonally inconsistent with what's come before. Up until this point, it's been goofy humor, I'm sorry, goofy horror, and facing the death of a child is decidedly not goofy. As Enslin trashes the room out of vengeance, he finds himself on the floor of the normal-seeming room as it had been when he'd first entered it. The countdown has completed itself and begins to count down again. The phone rings, and when he answers it, he realizes that he's speaking directly to the room himself, who threatens to replay the past over and over and over again. Enslin takes control of the situation and lights the room on fire, and as the bedroom burns, he sits back and enjoys his emergency cigarette. This culminates with Enslin throwing his drink through the window, allowing oxygen to flow into the room, causing an explosion 
With too much on the nose um, of triumphant music playing, it's clear that they really didn't know how to end this movie, and according to Wikipedia, there are three possible endings to the movie. Test ending one. Director Mikhail Hofstrom said that the ending to 1408 was reshot because test audiences felt that the original ending was too much of a downer. The first alternate ending was used in theatrical release. The original discarded... The original discarded ending had Mike dying in the fire, but happy to see the room destroyed. During Mike's funeral, Olin approaches Lily and Sam. He unsuccessfully attempts to give her a box of Mike's possessions, including the tape recorder. Olin claims that the room was successfully destroyed and that it will no longer hurt anyone else. He later listens to the recording in his car and becomes visibly upset when he hears Katie's voice on the tape. He looks in the car mirror and sees a vision of Enslin's burnt corpse in the back seat. Owen places the tape recorder back in the box and drives off. The final scene is of the gutted room, where an apparition of Mike looks out of the window while smoking a cigarette. He hears the, his daughter calling his name and disappears as he walks towards her. A door is heard closing and the scene fades to black. The ending is the default ending on the Blu-ray release and two-disc collector's edition. Canadian Network's Space... Okay, blah, 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 whatever. Um, this ending is also used... Okay, no, the... Incentive for filming three alternate endings was based on the director's belief that King's intention in his original novel was to leave the conclusion of the novel ambiguous. Test ending number two. Another ending uses elements from both the theatrical ending and the discarded original ending. Mike dies in the fire. Afterward, Owen remarks, Well done, Enslin, well done. Instead of the funeral scene, the sound of a funeral are dubbed over establishing shots of Los Angeles. Lily and Sam sort through Mike's effects in Lily's new home. Sam says, well, at least he went out in a blaze. Lily gives him a look of disapproval. Sam returns to his New York office, sorts through his mail, and discovers the manuscript that Mike wrote about Room 1408, written after Mike thought he had wakened from a dream. As Sam reads the story, audio from Mike's experiences in the room is heard. In a final scene, Sam's office door slams shut, and Mike's father's voice says, as I was, you are, as I am, you will be. Which makes no sense. Test setting three. In the third alternate ending, Mike survives and moves to Los Angeles with Lily. When he plays the tape of Katie's voice from room 1408, Lily hears it and looks shocked. Mike stares at Lily intently. The third ending is the ending that was tacked on the movie that I watched for the purposes of this review, but I feel that's the weakest of the three endings. The second one doesn't seem to do doesn't seem to make all that much sense, but I feel that the description of the first one is pretty strong. Okay, guys, that's really all I have. I don't have much. I mean, it's not much to this movie, but let's just talk about book versus movie right now. So Mike Enslin, the, the book character, or Mike Enslin played by John Cusack. John Cusack. Um, I've said this before on Stephen King uh, podcast movie adaptations, but when it comes to Stephen King characters, they can, they can tend to be uh, a little dry a little one note, a little boring, which is why I really enjoy it when you have strong character actors like Christopher Walken step into the role because they're able to do something with it. And John Cusack it definitely fits that bill. So I was really excited to sit down and watch this because it's great when you get an actor who can elevate. And like I said earlier, he's going to be doing it all over again with Samuel L. Jackson when they, when they do sell. And... I just actually finished rereading Cell today, um, so that was that was a nice little treat for for me to to realize. Um, and the same thing goes with with Olin. I mean, when you have Samuel L. Jackson, you go with Samuel L. Jackson, uh, who is just awesome to watch. And the two of them being able to uh, 
to just trade barbs and bounce off each other it's just it, it's just great and i can't wait to see what they they have in store for us in cell and samuel jackson will have a, a meteor role as he plays the um the main supporting character to john cusack's um main character and then everything else guys i have to go with the the book clearly i mean the short story is a master class in surreal uh, just disturbing storytelling and this movie is, is pretty goofy you know i mean the the one thing here that i just wish and that's too bad about john cusack is that i just wish that he he was required to do a little bit more than just shout at himself as much as he did i mean it, it's it's kind of a waste because like i said earlier it, it was just very reactionary by the nature of the the story itself which is why i didn't think that should have been made into a movie in the first place and final thoughts i mean now that i think about it I, honestly the movie if you're gonna make a movie it should have been a fake documentary i mean with the the if you had fake talking heads and you had Olin being interviewed the the director could present the sordid history and the strangeness of the room building to the moment where they finally show mike enslin's story which would be the centerpiece of the documentary enslin's story could very easily be recreated with a handheld camera turning that section into found footage you know rather than the the just the the narration of the the dictaphone and the interviewees could analyze portions of the footage the same way that the narrator analyzed the sections of the tape that were left behind in the story it would have made for just a very strong and distinct adaptation the likes of which that that we haven't seen so guys at 25 minutes I am finished with my review of 1408, but make sure that you come back, guys, because the next time you're going to be listening to Stephen King cast, you are going to be listening to the beginning of the end of the Dark Tower saga as I begin my review of Wolves of the Kala. So come, 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 Allah, uh, listen to my review of Wolves of the Kala, which will be immediately followed by Song of Susanna and the Dark Tower. All right, everyone, that's all that I have, but may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Horizons that are new to us Watching the signs along the way